George McGraw, today's guest, is the founder and CEO of Dig Deep, the only WASH organization focused solely on the U.S. In 2019, he co-authored an explosive study that revealed over 2.2 million Americans live without a tap or toilet, with race being the top predictor. He'll share insights about his work and his superpower. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. Welcome to the Superpowers for Good Show. George, thank you so much for being with me today. It's just a thrill to connect. That's ah, my thrill, Devin. Thanks for having me. Oh, golly. You know, in the last few years, I've had the opportunity to to do some volunteer work down in the Navajo Nation. I, I, I really made some great friendships down there. And so when I heard about your work down there with water, which is such a surprising but acute problem, so prevalent, like... I think still on the order of a third of families in the Navajo Nation aren't don't have water. It's a thrill to see you doing the work down there. T- tell us a little bit about your work uh, in, with the Navajo Nation, and then put that in context in terms of your overall uh, work. Happily, so I think when most people that listen to this podcast think of places without access to water, they probably automatically think of Sub-Saharan Africa or maybe Latin America. Um, they probably don't know that right here in the U.S., 2.2 million people don't have taps or toilets at home. And we're not even talking about Flint or other areas that maybe have running water, but it's not safe to drink. Uh, We're talking about people who have no infrastructure at all. So, you know, maybe they leave the house and shower at school or at a truck stop or use the bathroom at a neighbor's house or at their grandma's house. They buy bottled water at the store and use it for cooking and cleaning and drinking and bathing and if they can't afford that, they leave house in their car, or sometimes on horseback or on foot, and they pull water out of a stream or a mountain shaft um, or, a, or a trough. This is a, a big problem all over the country, all 50 states. But you're right. I think one of the places it's most acute is on Native reservations and on the Navajo Nation, where we do some work with the Navajo Water Project. Almost a third of families don't have running water at home. Yeah. Uh- one of the things that you did during the pandemic was to create this concept of uh, a suitcase, yeah. uh, water filtration system. Tell us about that and how it's working. And and have you, well, I'll ask the follow-ups later. Go ahead. Tell us about the suitcase. Well, you can imagine COVID hit the communities we work with really hard. Um, the Navajo Water Project is indigenous-led. My colleague, Emma Robbins, a Diné artist and activist, runs it. And she's got a team of almost 40 people. They work across the entire Navajo Nation, which is almost the size of West Virginia. If it were a state, it would be the 10th biggest. Um, but Navajo Nation, even though it has only a population of a couple hundred thousand, had at the beginning of the pandemic a higher infection rate per capita than even New York City. Um, because I think, you know, looking back at this now and working with public health experts, it's, it's, it's obvious, you know, if you don't have running water, you couldn't do the basic things at the beginning that we knew would keep you safe. You couldn't wash your hands. You couldn't stay home. You were constantly being forced to leave the house to collect water at a public standpoint or to go to the store and buy it. Um, so much so that really in the early days of the pandemic, um, we were losing clients just Every day, you know, new news of folks we were losing. Um, I wrote an op-ed at the time in the New York Times about it, um, you know, about a client of ours who who didn't have running water at home and who likely contracted it collecting water and brought it back to his mom's house um, when he was delivering water and firewood for her. And um, 
this is a long way to answer your question about the suitcase, but it's important to understand the context. You know, I think these are some of the most vulnerable people in this country. Um, And on the Navajo Nation, that meant that we as an organization who, you know, are so community focused, you know, 40% of the people that work at Dig Deep, including most of our field staff, all of our project managers and directors, they're from the communities that we serve. So this is real to them. I mean, almost half of us have grown out up without running water ourselves. Um, and, you know, we work really closely with communities. We enter people's homes. We, we put in sinks and showers and toilets and plumbing, and we're interacting with people on a daily basis. And all of a sudden that was scary, you know, unsafe, dangerous. Like we could, we could contract it ourselves. We could accidentally give it to one of our clients. And a lot of the people we work with live far from medical facilities and have a low or poor level of health overall. So we were really worried about that for the first couple of weeks. We just stopped installing our home water systems altogether. And we can talk about those later. Um, and just moved to like emergency water. We moved more than 2 million pounds of drinking water in the first month, I think, and served somewhere between 30 and 60,000 families with that or people with that. Um, but, you know, the folks we were working with as the pandemic dragged on, were like, well, we still need running water at home. We still need running water at home. We want to be able to stay home. How can you do this for us? And so the team on the ground uh, on Navajo innovated and took the system we would normally install in someone's house, an off-grid system that stores 1,200 gallons of water underground, which we deliver in food-grade trucks, and that uses solar power to pump that into the house through a water heater and a filter and a sink. Um, We took all of those component parts and we put them in this insulated box the size of a suitcase, and um, we installed it right outside the home so that nobody would have to go in and interact with folks. Um, And then when it became safe to go back in homes, it was really easy to take that modular system and to move it into the house and hook it up to a sink um, and to a drainage system. And, uh, you know, I, I, the last thing I'll say about the suitcase, which is, is so cool. I mean, it's such an example of like, you know, you, you start an organization like I did and at some point you watch it grow up and it grows up beyond you. Like, and it starts to do things and sort of act in a certain way. It's like your child, you know, it's got a personality of its own. And I think one of the things that's so great about what Dig Deep has become is it's, it's this sort of like tenacious engine for change. Everyone's throwing ideas at the wall and there's a lot of room for innovation and creativity. And, um, and people have way better ideas than I ever would. One of our staff members on Navajo, (laughs) He got in a fight with his wife, you know, something all of us in relationships uh, understand. And she was like, you know, go out to our, go out to our Hogan, go out to our um, other house and and stay there for the night. And so he packed his clothes and some water bottles and a suitcase. Um, And he went out there to spend the night and he woke up in the morning and realized, oh no, I left my water in the car. Like now I'm going to get it out and it's going to be frozen. But when he opened up his suitcase, it had been insulated by all his clothes. And even though it was sub-zero temperatures overnight, it hadn't frozen. And so... That's where the idea for the suitcase came in. And he went on and became a finalist for an innovation by design award from Fast Company for it. That's great. That's great. It's such a, a profound example of, of the, the best that people do. Um, give us a sense of some of the projects you're doing outside of the Navajo Nation, if you would. Sure. Well, the heart of our work at Dig Deep are community-led water and sanitation projects, really getting working taps and toilets to houses and to schools and to community centers. And we do that work on the Navajo Nation through our Navajo Water Project. And in the last couple of years, we've expanded into other 
like hot spots in the country where this is especially acute. And so now we have the Appalachia Water Project, which serves folks uh, in rural West Virginia and soon Eastern Kentucky. Um, and we have the Colonia's Water Project, which serves people in um, these sort of irregular communities along the U.S.-Mexico border called Colonias, which means just neighborhood in Spanish. Um, but these border towns you know, since they were built in the late 70s, early 80s, haven't had basic services like running water, streets, lights, electricity, broadband. And we're working with counties in Texas to to bring all of those services to the curb at once. Wow. I mean, it's just such such important work. But like you say, there's so we just don't appreciate that there are so many people in the United States that are living without water. How did you first come across this situation and decide to work on it? <laughs> well, this story is a little embarrassing, um, but I had no idea that this was a problem in my own country. I think I've always had a passion for water and and studied international human rights law and wanted to work on this issue abroad. I mean, I truly thought if you wanted to make a difference in water, you had to work abroad. So like many good millennials, I, I got on a plane and went over to help. And uh, our, our first focus at Dig Deep was on water access projects in Cameroon and in South Sudan. Really, I think great work that was focused on the human rights aspect of this kind of slow development, community led, very participatory approaches that were really successful over time. And then one day I, I got a call um, on our office number from a, a donor named Karen, I kid you not. And uh, and she said, you know, I want to give you 50 bucks, but my only requirement is that you spend it on the Navajo Nation. I was like, Karen, people in the U.S. don't need your money like we're we have water. Like, why don't you let me spend it where it's really needed? And um, there was some silence on the phone and you could tell she was kind of like controlling her temper a little bit. Um, but she explained to me that she had been working on Navajo on a on Habitat for Humanity style project, building houses and her Navajo colleagues uh, explained to her that like, we don't put kitchens or bathrooms in these houses that we're building because there's no running water here. And she was so floored as I was to find that that was happening in her own country. Um, and that's how we really got started on the Navajo Water Project, you know, meeting with local tribal officials and with residents who were already doing what they could to serve each other, you know, maybe filling up the water in the back of a pickup truck and driving it to each other's houses, um, helping each other drill wells. Um, and there was a tremendous opportunity to take some of the lessons that we had learned doing this work in other countries and applying them right here in the U.S. where no one's been paying attention. I think that's really uh, such a great, it, it's a powerful story because so many of us live in that world, right? Yeah. We have these blind spots and it takes someone sort of whacking us over the head with a figurative <laughs> two by four to help us see. And I appreciate you having the, the humility to share that story because it's so important. And all of us do that at times. We just, we don't know what we can't see. So that's really, really important. And I appreciate you um, sharing that. George, um, you have done some amazing things. Uh, and I just love uh, and am inspired by the work you're doing. Thanks, Devin. What is your superpower? You know, I uh, ever since I found out that you were having me on, which I was really excited about, I've been thinking about this question. Um, and, you know, like I'm a, I'm a young queer man um, who grew up in a pretty conservative, pretty religious household. And 
I think my superpower is uh, my ability to really see someone and intuit what they need from me. I mean that on like emotion, on an emotional level, a, a level of like service provision, you know. Um, and I also think there's a level of of like drive, drive for achievement that comes with that. Like it's this weird combination of like I really, I really see people and. I, I see what they need and I'm really driven to achieve that thing for them and for myself. And I, I mentioned the fact that I'm a queer person because I think that so many of our superpowers, they're like double-sided, double-edged swords, right? They have a shadow side mm-hmm. to them. I think for me growing up as a, a queer kid in the closet, I got really good from a place of fear at analyzing other people's emotions and and needs and sort of interior lives to try to understand like how are they perceiving me is my sort of ruse working and am i safe (laughs) yeah um kind of like a tool of manipulation right um and combined so often for me with this other phenomenon that a lot of you know queer people will talk about called we call it best little boy in the world syndrome but this idea that like you know, we start from this place where we feel this deficit that there's something wrong with us. And so we have this drive to achieve and to produce and to produce and to prove that we are, we are worthy and that we are good. And that even if you guess our secret and don't like that thing about us, you'll still find something of value there. Um, and like I said, in, in, in like the unevolved beginning of my life, those were some of my biggest struggles. And, and honestly, we're often weaponized against me and against other people. Um, as manipulation, as, as fear, as hiding, as lying. Um, but now I think if you can heal those and kind of use the momentum of them and redirect them toward good, there's, there's a lot of beauty and a lot of utility there. And I'm, I'm really glad for them. Yeah. I just, I can't let it go sort of as an aside. I want to bring a little bit of focus to your experience growing up. Um, In in a way, it's, I feel a sense of your ability to almost laugh at this side of yourself uh, in some ways, but it's heartbreaking to think about this process of discovering who you are uh, and hiding it and uh, trying to figure out constantly if you're safe in the world. Uh, you've developed some really powerful strengths as a result of that. But uh, as you think about your experience, what, what would you tell young people who are going through that today? Well, uh, first of all, I feel like I should say that as, as sort of like a, a cis white man, I had it pretty easy. Like I I could hide Um, and not always very convincingly looking back on it. But, you know, you look at pictures of yourself in middle school, you're like, Ooh, was that really hiding? Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I have, you know, you know, trans friends of color and in other folks in the community who, who don't have that luxury and had to, had to be a lot braver and muster a lot more power a lot earlier. Um, And we're, you know, horribly abused by society and sometimes by their families or friends as a result. And I think, I think I would say, I, I, I actually, you know, have young people in my life who think about this a lot. And it's, it's funny. My, um, I have, uh, I was in a relationship for a long time with someone who has a, a teenage son. And I remember early on, 
um, that that boy had come to him and said like, you know, you know, Papa, when I, when I kiss someone, is it okay if I kiss girls? Almost like, like the reverse of coming out. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he and I sort of looked at each other later and thought like, well, how beautiful is that? That like someday kids won't have to come out and like, they'll just be. Um, and yeah. we're seeing that shift, I think in society, especially in the cities, but part of me mourns that too. I think, yeah, sure. It was a, not sure. I mean, it was a difficult experience, but um, this this crucible of coming out of like being forced to reconcile with your own identity um, and to be able to look in very stark relief at everything in your life and figure out what's serving you and what's not serving you and um, you know who who holds space for you and who doesn't and what you believe about yourself and what you don't and like that that clarifying purifying painful but maybe sort of like alchemical process um there is something really magical to it um so as long as we continue to have to do it there will be value to it but i i won't be sad to see it go yeah shifting back just a little bit more directly to the question of your superpower uh, as we as we think about the uh your ability to see, identify, feel someone's need and, and develop then a, a powerful desire to solve that. How would you coach someone to develop that skill? What are the steps one might take to, to do that? Because if you're in, if you have a desire to help people at a high level, developing that skill would really be great. Yeah, I actually think, I mean, I didn't know what it was at the time, but I spent a lot of time in my formative years um, essentially meditating, essentially practicing mindfulness. I spent a lot of time alone contemplating like who I am and who other people are. And I had, I think, a rich interior life. Um, and I have worked to continue to cultivate that as an adult through like, you know, a daily mindfulness practice and journaling in other ways. And and I think I really see a lot of similarities between those two things, between, you know, that active pursuit of mindfulness now as an adult and what I was experiencing as a young person who, who was struggling so much internally and who, you know, spent a lot of time focused inward. Um, and I think that really helped, helped develop that, um, that muscle. Um, but I think, I, I think like my, maybe that answer is like a little bit inadequate too, because I, I think superpowers are one of those things that powers are those things maybe that you can identify and try to strengthen some muscles around. But um, I have yet to meet a person whose true superpower wasn't developed almost accidentally. <laughs> I think that like, you know, so often you ask someone, what do you, what do you do for work? And then they say something interesting. You say like, wow, wow how did you get that job? And they can't even really explain it to you. Um, yeah. unless they were a surgeon because their mom was a surgeon and whatever, like it, most of the time it's like, well, I don't know. Like it was, I had a conversation at a bar one night that led to another conversation somewhere else. And, you know, now I'm a roller coaster designer living in Tustin, Florida. And you know, what do you want? Life is, life is weird and circuitous and wonderful. Yeah. 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 That's such a, a, a great, a great, uh, example. Well, George, thank you so, so much for taking the time to be with us. Before we wrap up, I, I want to ask you to just take a minute and tell people how they can learn more about Dig Deep, uh, 
how they donate, how they volunteer, how they connect with you personally, if you're open to that. Just take a minute, if you would, cover that little waterfront. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're a, we're a digital first organization, so you can find out everything that we do um, at digdeep.org. Um, you can see our really transparent financials. You can dig into each of the projects and see what we're working on now and how we do it. Um, 100% of the donations that go to Dig Deep from the public are, are, are passed through directly to programs. So we never put a dollar of public funding into overhead or administrative costs like for instance, most of my salary or, um, you know, how to keep the lights on in our office here in Los Angeles. I think a lot of that funding comes from um, other funders like venture philanthropists, our water council, we call them, um, and foundations. Um, I'd say if you want to get involved in this issue, which maybe you're hearing about for the first time and think to yourself, like, what does that really mean? You know, like most of us have always had access to a tap that you could just turn on and save clean, abundant water that's really cheap flows out of it. And so if that's been your experience and you're like, what the hell is this all about? Um, I would advise you to try this thing that we do at work every year called the four liters challenge for 24 hours. Take like a gallon milk jug or a one liter bottle of water and fill that four times through the day. Um, of course, a, a milk jug is already about four liters by itself. And every time you use water in that 24 hours, if you're going to brush your teeth or cook some ramen or get that stain out of your clothes or wash your armpits in the morning or, or drink, certainly drink, take it out of that bottle. And at 4 p.m. on the day of your challenge, check in with yourself. Like, what has this been like? Um, how much water do I have left? Am I going to make it through the night? Most of our clients, no matter where they live, no matter what their experience um, day to day, like one thing they have in common is that they plan their days around how much access to water or a toilet that they have, you know, that determines whether they can take their kids to sports or, you know, whether they can go to work or whether they're healthy today. Um, so doing that for 24 hours and planning your day around how much water you have is a really eye-opening experience. And if you want to get involved in this issue, it's a great way to start. Fantastic. Well, uh, again, George, thank you so much for being with us today. We wish Thanks, you Evan. every success in your efforts to bring water to those who don't have it here in the United States. Thank you for having me. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Be super empowered. Get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer. Interested in having me speak to your company, organization, or association? Visit devonthorpe.com. Then let's talk. Now, keep using your superpowers for good. Together, we can reverse climate change, improve global health, and eradicate poverty.